0: Welcome to episode 30 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this podcast, I'll discuss how to keep your kids safe online, understand the threats that are targeting them, and what you should do, ideally, as a parent. My guest today will be retired Supervisory Special Agent Chris Hinkle from the Jackson Division, Jackson, Mississippi. And he will talk a particular uh, child case that he worked uh, when he was an FBI agent, and we'll discuss some other items of interest, again, on how to keep your kids safe online. So first off, since this is episode 30, I want to thank everybody for listening. The listenership to the podcast has kind of grown steadily since I started this back in August, I believe was when I did my first podcast. And I appreciate those of you who download and listen and who tell your friends to listen to the podcast as well. I know that I'm not always the most consistent in what date it comes out, but a lot of times that revolves around my schedule and who I can get to come on and in particular topics of discussion. I will probably do another quick a shorter podcast tomorrow discussing uh, cyber warfare specifically because of some things that have been in the news, but that'll be for tomorrow. Again, if you want to tell your friends where to find this podcast, it's on all your regular podcasting outlets, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, I think, Stitcher, uh, and feel free to leave comments or reviews on those sites. You can also email me directly, darren at com. That email address is in the, the description of this podcast, or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn slash, linkedin.com slash ian slash Darren Mott, all one word. So this our, this particular podcast, I've been meaning to do this for a little while. It's how to keep your kids safe online. A couple weeks ago, I did a uh, podcast with my wife answering questions that her friends had about cybersecurity. And, and after it was done, one of her friends had emailed her and said, well, I meant to ask, how do you protect kids online? That's kind of, I'll be honest with you, that is a tough question because there are a lot of different threats out there that are targeting your kids. And so I probably will not hit every single threat for children online. I'm going to try to hit the high points for this in this podcast to try to at least get you started thinking about, you know, what is my own security protocols do I have in place to keep my kids safe? And part of it is, do you understand the threats that are out there? And there's a multitude of threats targeting kids. The most obvious is uh, online child pedophiles. Those are people who engage in sexual fantasies about children. And I will say, if you, I should probably preface this by saying, if you're going to listen to this podcast, you probably don't want to listen to it with your kids in your car, uh, unless they're old enough to understand what they're they're listening to, because there probably be some things here that are a little... Tough to hear, uh, especially when Chris and I talk about some of the cases we worked uh, in the FBI, uh, specifically around this topic. But uh, you know, obviously, child pedophiles are the biggest concern, one of the biggest concerns for your kids online. These are people that uh, engage in the trading, distribution, and oftentimes the creation of child sex videos and video uh, and, and pictures. They share them on private websites, private forums. Uh, In the beginning, when this first started to be an issue, they weren't very good on their operational security. So the Innocent Images program was started with the FBI in 1992-93 timeframe out of the Baltimore Division, started with a child abduction, and ended up they discovered this huge online trading community that they then infiltrated with an undercover operation. It's been very successful since then, and there have been a lot of of national initiatives targeted at taking down these particular pedophiles, these these individuals that are engaging in this activity and trading in these images. The problem is there are way more of them than there are law enforcement officers to take them down. They've gotten much better on their operational security, which means it's harder to track them down. And so it's really incumbent on you as a parent to understand how are your kids accessing information online? Are they communicating with people they don't know? Uh, because these pedophiles will groom children to engage in conversations and picture exchange and take pictures of themselves. And ultimately, it can lead to them meeting online. There was a case I worked, I didn't work it in Charlotte, but there's a case that my squad worked in Charlotte, a couple two cases that I'll talk about. One was a 15 year old boy in North Carolina. Uh, he was kind of a loner. And he started engaging in online conversation with a woman in Alabama. She was a 40 year old Uh, married housewife, and she convinced this 15-year-old boy that he was in, he was not loved, and he was in an environment he shouldn't be in, and that she was going to come and rescue him. So she drove from Alabama to North Carolina with her husband, which is kind of an odd situation, and they essentially kidnapped the kid. Now, the kid went willingly, but it was still a kidnapping um, because he really wasn't at an age to make sensible decisions for himself. And she ultimately. Sexually abused him. I'm not going to get into details on that part. No one wants to hear that, but uh, I'm sure he is probably still going through therapy today because of that. She was ultimately her and the husband were ultimately arrested. Um, they were discovered several days later. Uh, the kid gave a full debriefing on everything that happened to him, and they were convicted and went to jail. That was one case that was that was rough and the, probably the worst case I've ever seen was in the Raleigh um, Raleigh resident agency, which is part of the Charlotte Division. And our entire squad worked this particular case. And in a nutshell, there was a guy, he was a computer scientist at a local research, a large firm in Raleigh, the Raleigh area. And he was distributing pictures and images of his under ten year old daughter online. It came to our attention because that those images made their way overseas in the overseas um, law enforcement and agency sent it to the FBI. They were able to identify. Uh, she went to a private school and she was wearing a school uniform that had the crest of the school. They identified the school was in Raleigh. We went to Raleigh, identified the girl, arrested the husband, uh, and it was a pretty rough case. I know I did a lot of the affidavits for information on his email and other things, and this guy was had had a lot of lot of problem. I'm not going to get into the details of it. But he was abusing not only his under 10-year-old daughter, but his 18-month-old nephew, uh, as well as some other people around the country. And, and he was ultimately sentenced, thankfully, to 99 years in prison, so he will die in prison. But it just kind of shows the 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 range of victimhood from from individuals you know, that, that the victims know, to, indivi- to individuals they don't know. So, If you have a a child of preteen to teenage years, you have to kind of look at how are they communicating online. There's a lot more ways now than there were back then in the mid two thousands on how people communicated online. It's actually much more problematic, and it makes it very hard to monitor those things. Now, add to so child child pedophiles is one issue. The other big issue for kids is cyberbullying, and this is child on child crime. And I'll give you a third issue is teenage or, or even pre-teenage sexting between kids where kids will actually send images of themselves to their boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm using the quotation marks with my fingers for those. And this becomes a problem, which I'll talk about in a minute for the kids that distribute those things. So you have the, 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 the pedophiles online, they're looking to, for kids. Uh, you have the cyberbullying between kids and you have the sexting between teenagers. And so As a parent, how do you deal with all of these things? Well, the first thing, the only thing, well, let me rephrase that. The number one thing you need to do is understand how your children are communicating online. Do they have a phone? Do they have an iPad? Do they have a Switch? Do they have an Xbox? Do they have a PlayStation? Do they have a computer? Do they have a laptop? Where are all these things located? How are you monitoring it? Are you limiting the time they are on it? On their phone, on their iPhone, I mean, on their phone, on their iPad, on their computers, what social media... Applications are they using to share their information? Probably Instagram, probably TikTok are the big ones. And Chris and I will talk about the apps later on. But these are all avenues by which bad things can happen to your kids. So, as a parent, you need to be proactive in limiting those areas of access for bad things to happen to your children. So, I cannot tell you how to parent. I can only suggest that you be proactive and you kind of have to be an asshole to your kids in order to keep them safe. It'll keep it. They may not like it as you're doing it. And that may mean that after 11 o'clock, all, all devices go offline. That may mean turning off your, your Wi-Fi to your house at 11. So they can't access online. Now, if they have a phone, you know, there's apps you can use that will lock the phone that they can't use. So, you know you have to take those things into account to do that as a parent to be proactive for those things. One thing I'll note of of interest for you to be aware of most specifically on the sexting piece. now cyber bull, let, me, let me before I get to that, let me go back a second to cyberbullying. Cyberbullying is an issue because a lot of times kids will not tell you that they're being bullied online. so you need to look for behavioral changes that will indicate something's going on. And you need to talk to your kids about this. I know that sometimes kids won't want to talk to them to talk about it. Uh, if you have older siblings, maybe you can get the siblings to talk to the, to the kid being bullied who can then talk to you. Um, but understand that kids are fully immersed in the digital world at this point in time. Now, if you're wise enough that you don't allow the, your kids to have a cell phone, to have an iPad, to have a computer, Great. However, in this COVID age, my guess is most kids have some access to a computer so they can do their schoolwork. That leads to a whole host of other issues, which requires you as a parent to try to monitor those things. So, you know, so you have the pedophiles, you have cyberbullying. And then the sex scene is a big thing because people don't often think about teenagers doing this, but they do. Not only do they send images of themselves to pedophiles, which is problematic, but they'll send it to other teenagers, where this becomes a problem is, let's say, your 15-year-old daughter sends a picture of herself, be it suggestive, be it, you know, not with clothes, to a 16-year-old boyfriend. And then that 16-year-old boyfriend decides he's going to distribute it to his friends. Both of those kids, the 15-year-old girl who sent the image, the 16-year-old boy who sent it to his friends, have engaged in online child pornography. They have they have traded images online. It's a violation of federal law. This is not something you want your children involved in because it is possible they could be arrested for distribution of child pornography and be convicted of a felony. Now, you know, you could probably say, well, if they're 15, 16, they know what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. The law doesn't really care at that point, especially depending on the nature by which the images were distributed. If the, the 15-year-old and the 16-year-old break up and the 16-year-old sends the image all over school then he is going to be arrested for distribution of child pornography. That felony will follow him the rest of his life. He will never get a clearance if he ever wants to work for the government. He will find it hard to find jobs. He will never be able to vote. So, I mean, you, you need, it's a hard conversation to have, but you need to talk to your kids about this particular activity and tell them not to do it. I mean, at the end of the day, they may still end up doing it, but you should at least be proactive in having that discussion with them on being careful not to do those things. I know that when my daughter first got her cell phone and wanted a Facebook account, because at the time when she was a teenager, Facebook was the rage, there were 10 rules that I made that she had to follow, she had to abide by to be able to use Facebook. And if she violated those rules, I had the right as the parent to terminate her Facebook account. I don't remember all 10 rules, to be quite frank. Um, I've since deleted that particular Facebook account on my own. She doesn't use it anymore. She's 20. She's tw- I should know this off the top of my head. She's <laughs> going to be 24 this year. I don't really need to follow her Facebook anymore. But if you have kids that are using Facebook or Instagram, come up with rules. Uh, I do remember a couple of the rules. Like the number one rule was if they were going to have a social media account, the first person they had to friend or accept as a connection was me, and they couldn't get rid of me as a connection. I had the ability to monitor and see everything that they posted or was posted to them on their social media account. I had the right to remove anything that I found objectionable, uh, and I had the right to terminate their account if needed. Those are the two big ones I remember. I had 10 other ones, and I'll be frank with you, I cannot remember them, but I'm sure if you Google 10 rules for my kids online, you will probably find lists upon lists within the Internet of, of parental rules you can take to start engaging in some kind of police action, Uh, on your kid's social media account. The other thing you can do is tell your kids that you have monitoring software on their computers, their iPads, and their iPhones, and everything they do you're monitoring. Even if you don't have it, tell them you do. How are they going to know? They're certainly not going to probably have the capability to go in and figure out if there's monitoring software on it. Unless they're unbelievably computer savvy, then you're probably out of luck. But if they are preteen or younger teenagers, they don't have that much Savvy, so you can probably get away with it. So, you can kind of do those things. So, admittedly, there's a lot more I could talk about on this. Um, and so, I'm actually creating an online course on how to, that goes into much more detail on these things. It's much more specific on what the threats are, resources you can find. There's a couple of resources you can go to. The most, the, the one big one, especially for abductions and things of that nature, is what's called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children NCMEC. Nickmic.wellphrase nickmick.com or I'm sorry or it might beorg missingkids dot, or, or missing dot org So you can go there and they have sorry, they have all sorts of resources that can help you to um, get information regarding how to keep your kids protected online. So with that, let me go talk to my guest. So without any further ado, let me welcome to the show, uh, my friend from Jackson, Mississippi, Chris Hinkle. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, bud. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, one of your dozens and dozens of followers. <laughs> exactly.
0: Actually. Uh, is it up to dozens? That'd be fantastic <laughs> if that was the case. But I appreciate you, to, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk for this one. This is a, a particular subject I've been trying to get uh, on for a little while, talking about how to protect your kids online. And we'll, we'll get to that part of it in a bit. But uh, as with any FBI person I have online, i like to ask, get an idea of what you did before the bureau? What made you decide to change what you were doing? Where was your first office? And so, how did it all? How did it all start?
1: Well, uh, before the FBI, I spent 13 years in the United States Air Force. I uh, was basically growing up in my hometown. I didn't have a focus of what I wanted to do in life. Uh, I had thought about being an FBI agent since 1970. And one of the things that happened to me in 1970 is I had the opportunity to sponsor a book for our local library at Skyland Elementary School. And the book was written by J. Edgar Hoover. And of course, growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, one of my favorite shows was the FBI. That kind of stayed in the back of my mind for a while. But after getting out of high school, didn't really have a lot of focus in college. And I kind of needed to move on. I I didn't want to end up working in you know, manual labor like some of my other friends in high school. And the Air Force came calling, and I took advantage of it. So I, as I said, I spent 13 years there. The first eight of it was working with explosives and missile systems. That was, it was okay. Uh, traveled around the world, went to Turkey for about 15 months, had a great time over there. And then uh, I started having some conversations with the Air Force Office in special investigations. They were recruiting at the time when I was based in Florida. And I started my recruitment package there and I had transferred to South Dakota. And once I uh, got there, the local OSI office had contacted me to continue my application process. And subsequently, I became an OSI agent. Uh, OSI, is, uh, those of you that are probably our age, Recall Steve Austin, the $6 million man, worked for OSI. There, there really is an OSI. So my first tour with uh, OSI was in South Dakota, working pretty much everything under the sun. Got a lot of experience processing crime scenes. You don't have extended teams, evidence response teams, and compartmentalized teams like you do in the FBI. So you kind of have to do it on your own. Uh, even back then, I worked with some cases with a couple of FBI agents out of our peer resident agency in Pierre, South Dakota, the the capital of South Dakota. One of them had been there since the Wounded Knee occupation for the FBI back in 1973. So it was just amazing to sit and and talk with this individual. Uh, From South Dakota, I left there and transferred down to South Mississippi. And while there, uh, they they were coming up with this new cyber program that they were looking at uh, starting called these uh, Computer Forensic Field Examiner. We had regional computer forensic examiners where if we had a case that had a computer element to it, we'd send the computer to them and they would process it, and, you know, ask us a couple questions. But they quickly became overwhelmed and they came up with the idea of training field agents to be able to do their office's own computer forensics. And during this time, it was being led by a guy named Howard Schmidt, and I don't know if that name rings a bell. It does. But Howard ended up—he ended up being the cyber czar uh, for the president. And uh, then he worked worked a little while out at Microsoft. I believe as a chief security officer. He was—it was in the early days in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So there were a group of us that were were tested for an aptitude in computers. Uh, some people had computer science degrees. I had a couple of MS DOS classes in college, but really wasn't a uh, a a computer guy, and apparently I didn't have any bad habits, but I had an analytical-type thinking process about me, and I was selected for that first round of computer forensic field examiners. Uh, In that era of the computer forensic field examiners at OSI uh, was a guy named Kevin Mandia, and I think most of the people in the cyber world know who Kevin Mandia is. So Kevin was an OSI agent as well. And we all came up about the same time. Uh, of course, Kevin took a more lucrative path than I did coming out of being an OSI agent. And
0: yeah, You should have probably uh, jumped on those I coattails while you had the opportunity.
1: Yeah, I probably should have saddled myself up with Kevin in the early days and, and left the Air Force uh, when he left the Air Force to go start that company. So anyway, as I, as I mentioned, uh, they, they trained me how to conduct forensic examinations of Microsoft systems. So I, I wasn't a full gamut of being able to do every type of forensic thing. But so most computers, uh, that I would come across were Microsoft systems, they, they basically built a system for me to process these things. And I kind of under, uh, was able to understand the hierarchy of the way things are written and overwritten and all of that and became pretty well known with it throughout my OSI career. I then, uh, transferred down to the Gulf Coast. Uh, As I was down in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, I worked some cases with the local FBI office there, and they had encouraged me to apply with the FBI. And I was coming up on a time of transition in my life. I'd just finally finished my college degree after bouncing around the world and changing majors a number of times. And I was able to, uh, to get processed into the FBI in 98 and 99 Hit the FBI Academy. And then my first office was Washington field office. And I was fortunate because there were 19 people in my academy class that went to Washington field office. Only two of us made it to substance squads. Everybody else went to applicants, which is just a horrible existence. Uh, Especially, uh, especially
0: in Washington, I I would imagine. I say, especially in Washington, because you're getting all the political pointy crap you got to deal with.
1: Oh, yeah. And it was election year coming up as well. You know, you got 2000 with uh, Bush v. Gore. So uh, one of my partners, uh, one of my classmates, he went to a Chinese counterintelligence squad. And I went to the National Computer Crime Squad. At that time in Washington field office, there was only one computer crime squad. And it was a pretty well-known squad as it was the squad that took down Kevin Mitnick. So there were one or two agents that were still on the squad that were involved in that. Uh, So I got to hear about some of the early days of, you know, going after and catching a a well-known computer hacker. Well, shortly after I arrived in Washington, D.C., the squad split, and they formed a national security cyber squad. Uh, A guy named Scott Larson, I don't know if you know Scott. He has his own consulting agency. Scott was the supervisor of that newly formed squad. So we kind of helped them get things set up uh, while I remained on the main squad. And we primarily focused on things like uh, intellectual property crimes, internet fraud, innocent images, you know, type, you know, the cyber fraud type stuff. And I think that's where you and I actually began crossing paths was on the, uh, the intellectual property rights stuff.
0: Yep. Did, what, where, quick question. Was your, was your squad, did, did sure. were either of those two squads, was one of them a Nipsey squad? Did you go by that designation or did you guys yeah. use a different, different designation?
1: They, they primarily dealt with Nipsey, Uh For, for those of, of the people that are still with the FBI, you know, back then, we didn't have a lot of support on the right, cyber yeah, side exactly. from headquarters. There yeah, there wasn't a cyber division. There was uh, – you had CSIPs, uh, you know, Computer Crime, Intellectual Property Section. And then you had, you know, you basically had NIPC, which was primarily a unit uh, up at headquarters under – it was kind of associated with white collar crime.
0: What well, kind of went back so there and forth. Wasn't yeah. A it lot went, right. It went back and party? forth between, it went back and forth between criminal division and counterterrorism. Division. They couldn't decide where they wanted to keep it because it kept moving. Cause I remember huh. I kept having program managers oh, yeah. in different, in, in either criminal or counterterrorism and it would swap back and forth until 2002 when cyber actually stood itself up. So,
1: yeah, that was uh so it was, I look at that thing, uh, you know, I try to look at the positives and everything and looking back over my career, I I don't know how you look at it, but I I tend to look at the fact that we didn't have a lot of support at FBI headquarters as a blessing because we also didn't have a lot of oversight, Mm -hmm. which can usually gum up the gears when you're trying to get things done. So when I first started doing things like cyber undercover operations uh, on the squad at Washington Field Office, we were, you and I were kind of able to blaze our own trails. Yep. You know, we kind of set the standards. I mean, Innocent Images was out there, but Innocent Images really wasn't part of anything cyber. It was dealing with crimes against children. It was primarily in the it was violent crime section. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't something that was that was readily associated with cyber at the time. So I think you and I were able to, to you know, go out and, and uh, as I said before, blaze some trails on being able to do things. Also, we could probably talk a little bit of BS, too, because there weren't a lot of people at headquarters that kind of understood how we did things. So we could throw out some computer acronyms, and they said, well, they sound like they know what they're talking about. Let's go ahead and approve (laughs) this.
0: Exactly. It's exactly right. (laughs) Got that right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, So I spent, like I said, I spent the first five years uh, primarily at at Washington Field. It was a little less than five years uh, back then. You didn't have to be in six years before you went to headquarters. But because I already had five years with another agency, they were able to allow me to incorporate that into my 954, which was the document you used to fill out to get headquarters slot. And a friend of mine, who's uh, no longer with us, uh, Mark McCulski had passed away from a blood cancer that he got while we were working on 11 case uh, and processing the Pentagon. Uh, Mark called me up. He had been at headquarters before when, uh, there was a unit called the special technologies and applications unit. And they had now made it a section and they were putting together this whole new section. And Mark called me up and said, Hey, would you think about coming to headquarters? I said, Yeah, I don't want to come to headquarters. He goes, Well, you'll get a raise. I said, Yeah, I'm getting ready to put my 13 on GS 13. I'm going to get a raise anyway. Well, where you're going, coming out here, we're going to get you a view car. I got a view car right now. Mm-hmm. He said, "Do you know where we're located?" He said, "Do you know where we're located?" I said, "Yeah, you're in the Hoover Building, right on the fifth floor. You know that old safe room." He said, "No." He said, "We're located in Chantilly, Virginia." Chantilly. So that's a mile and a half from my house. He said, "Yes." I said, "I'm on board."
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so
1: it's it's rare that you get the headquarters commute, and the headquarters commute's a mile and a half. So. Yeah. It was uh, it was a great time. Mile and so half I spent plus two years a, there.
0: Mile and a half plus a promotion. Pardon? Mile and a half plus more money.
1: Oh yeah, my, yep. Mile and a half plus more money, uh, which my wife was real happy about. That we were able to move out of a small town home and actually buy a single family home, and that was during the boom of housing prices up in DC, which we were blessed with. That sold our town home for twi- more than twice what we paid for it. Stayed in the town home for eighteen months and sold it for. 35% more than we so, paid for it. So we uh, we did well. So anyway, um, there was a guy named John Rossi that was a special agent in charge of the Jackson Division. And he was trying to get his cyber squad going. And he had bumped into my section chief at the time and at a conference. And said, so, well, I got a guy that's putting in for a desk down there. Uh, he said, well, get me a copy of his 954. Let me take a look at it. So he did, and he saw my background dealing with computers and said, this is the guy I need down in Jackson. So next thing I know, you know, the board comes out and I get the supervisor's desk down in Jackson. And when it was sold to me as a desk down in Jackson, it was cyber, which was that that back then encompassed the national security side and the criminal side. So you just had two sides of cyber. And the squad that I was on also had the violent crimes, gangs, and drugs. Mm. And I said, okay, well, I can handle that. I, I did some violent crime uh, and drug cases when I was an OSI agent. I'm not sure I'll be able to figure this out. And we'll get the cyber stuff going. Little did I know that there were some negotiations between the Jackson Division and headquarters going on. If you remember during those uh, early years of the 2000s is when the Directorate of Intelligence was standing up. And
2: yeah, because sadly, of that, sadly, they were
1: starting I, these yeah. new squads called field intelligence groups <laughs> where they were going yeah, put to the, put the analysts all in one spot, you know, and uh, the, the analysts were going to drive the train. So <clears throat> I show up in Jackson and they said, welcome to Jackson. Here's your, your office. Here's your squad. Oh, by the way, because we're starting a, a field intelligence group, we had to move some programs around for them to be able to give us a standalone field intelligence group squad and I said okay and they said uh, you're getting all the other programs so now in addition to violent crime gangs drugs and cyber I also had civil rights computer analysis response team victim witness coordinator I had a resident agency and two task forces so I had about I ended up going from about uh, 10 agents to about 17. With some task force officers, so I had a lot of stuff on my plate, and i, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if anybody knows about the history of civil rights in Mississippi. It's not exactly a small program.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, that, but but that's kind of the that's the that's just the effect of going to a small office because so there's 56 FBI field offices. Where does Jackson rank? It's in the lower 50s. It's lower than Birmingham. I'm pretty sure. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: Uh, except for the civil rights program. Except for-, uh, for the two years <laughs> uh, that mm-hmm. I ran the civil rights program in Jackson, we had the number one civil rights program in the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had things that we were doing before other school- other offices were doing it, like the Cold Case Initiative, where we were going back and looking over old FBI cases from the 50s and 60s. And reopening some of those to see if we could, you know, bring some closure to the families. Sure. We also had the Mississippi burning case, which was reopened while I was the squad supervisor. And that uh, that was that was a pretty big case to be working. Uh, we actually brought back an agent from the 60s as a contractor, Jim Ingram, to actually help us work the case. Mm. So that worked out well. We, we picked up actually uh, James Ford Seal, one of the Klansmen that was involved in the Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman murders back in the early 60s. So it, we had some successes there. But the problem was it it didn't afford me everything I needed to focus on cyber. Right. On top of that, they uh, because that those weren't enough bricks to be tossing me while I'm treading water in the swimming pool, uh, the other bricks that they tossed me was, well, here's your funded staffing level. In other words, here's how many agents you're going to have that will work cyber in the entire state of Mississippi. Two. And not only will you have two, you'll only have one directly assigned to you in Headquarters City. And then you'll have a half body up north assigned to somebody else, and a half body in the south assigned to somebody else. So they work your program, but you have no authority over them. Then they decided to throw me another brick. And I know you're well aware of this other brick because you've probably dealt with it when you were a squad supervisor, which is. The brick that was created by Robert Mueller, director of the FBI, called the three-year rotational transfer. (laughs) Yeah. So so the rotational transfer caused me some significant headaches because most of the people that were really interested in, uh, in working cyber were the younger agents, and you couldn't get the older guys to do it. And I would get a couple of younger agents that had an aptitude, and by the time I got them trained, it was time for them to run off to work on their three-year rotational transfer to be involuntarily transferred to a large field office. And the way that the FBI works and the way that the transfer policy works, you don't get a backfill. You don't get a replacement for a while. And if you do, it's probably another brand new agent. You won't get a, a trained person coming into your office. So that was that was pretty difficult to, to deal with at the time. We had a couple of cases that we were working. uh, tried to do my best to, to help help the younger guys learn. We, we had some partnerships where we, I, I cultivated working some informants with our counterintelligence squad, of going out and doing some liaison, getting the InfraGuard program back up and running where it should be. And I, I feel like I set a pretty good foundation uh, about the time that I left the squad. We had gone from two agents to four. We had started a cyber task force working with the Mississippi Attorney General's office. Uh, we actually had the uh, cyber agents re- reporting directly to the supervisor, so you didn't have to deal with someone else that was manning the, you know, the the caseload of the agent. You could actually focus on your program. So we were able to get that stuff going. I think today at the Jackson Field office, it's, a, it's an entire standalone squad with about seven agents.
0: And, you, did and you have any, right,
1: pretty busy?
0: Did you have any innocent images undercover going there while you were there?
1: Not while I was running the squad. So that, that came in a little bit later. Uh, We ended up in Jackson, the supervisor, the the plethora of supervisors that took over after I did ended up, you know, work giving innocent images primarily to task force officers. It wasn't something that the agents were, were primarily working because when you're working in a small office, you really don't even, you have very little time to even focus on a primary program. So, we had a couple of really good cyber agents, but they were also SWAT team members, sure. which meant you know, you know, twenty five percent of their time minimum was going to be dedicated toward work with SWAT or training with SWAT. So anyway, as I said, I, I got the foundation there. I think this the cyber program is working pretty well now. It has a, a standalone uh, supervisor. I actually had a confrontation with Director Mueller over his three year rotational policy, which did not win me a lot of friends, but you've known me for 20 years now. You know, I'm, I'm pretty honest and blunt.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, Mueller had asked me during one of his visits in 2007, he said, you got this huge underburn at cyber. And I said, yes, sir. We, uh, he said, well, why is it so high? It's, it's the worst, you know, the worst rating in your out of all the programs in your office. And I said, I'm glad you asked that. I said, every time we get a new agent trained, you know, we lose them. And he kind of laughed and said, oh, I guess that's because of my three-year rotational policy. And much to the chagrin of the special agent charge who was sitting next to me, I looked at, at Robert Mueller and said, yes, sir. That is exactly what the problem is. And the I saw the, the color run from the special agent charge's face when <laughs> I said that. But it's the truth. Yep. I mean, what am I, I'm not going to lie to him. Uh, he laughed it off. Mueller did. It didn't really help, didn't hurt us, so we moved on. So uh, you were asking me about uh, innocent images uh, and
0: crimes against children. So, I mean, I assume at the time when you were down there, the crimes against children matters were still largely probably had a cyber focus. I'm assuming you weren't doing – I mean, I – I mean, I don't know because it depends on the size of the office, but for most of the office I ever worked in, the crimes against children came to the cyber squad ultimately in the two thousands and 2010s until a couple of years ago, it moved over. But at the time, were you guys in charge of the crimes against children
2: program?
1: You had, uh, in, in the Jackson office, the, a lot of that was falling under the violent crime supervisor along okay. with human trafficking mm-hmm. that was going on. Um, so, if, if it ended up having a computer aspect to it and the crimes against children, we would tend to partner up with them. Gotcha. It wasn't until later after I had, I had left the squad before it became uh, part of the cyber focus. I got you. Uh, there in the Jackson office. So, yeah, I mean, we had a number of those, but most of those were, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of cases, we didn't have any cases that I recall that we generated on our own. They were mostly referrals from other offices. You know, somebody came across something that had a nexus to Mississippi and they would send it down to us and we would run it to ground. And Mm -hmm. more often than not, it turned out to be a very small piece of the the puzzle from up north, but wherever they sent it. And we really didn't have any big cases with it. Um,
0: And that's largely the case. I think for most, for most of those cases, it's not like you're, you're not self-generating those cases. It's someone's getting information from a, either an Innocent Images UCL or some other national initiative, and then farming them out to the offices where the subject resides. But I'm going to guess you didn't ha- you mm-hmm. weren't exactly lacking in child pornography subjects. Would be my guess.
1: No, no, and and that was one of the things where um, the program of identifying known images really helped out. So you had you had units. I think there was I think there was a, a group that was up in was it up in Pittsburgh that would go out and they had people that would scour the internet looking for hash values of known images and then track those images down. Oh yeah.
2: Uh,
0: I think to, that was in Lithicum, Maryland. I think that's where they did that one, but I could be wrong.
1: Okay. It? Yeah. We had innocent images that was run out, you know, the began out of the Maryland, uh, the, the right. Baltimore office, mm-hmm. but there was, there was a group uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. That was one of the guys that headed it up in Pittsburgh uh, where they were using some of the, the students and interns to actually go out and help, you know, identify some things and, and refer those down. Gotcha. And, and for your listeners, uh, you know, hash values, basically the, the hash value, if hash value is one, two, three, four for that image, if you find that same image somewhere else and the same hash value is one, two, three, four, you've got a duplicate image, same mm, image. Right. And if you change anything in that image, now the hash value is going to be one, two, three, five. So it's a it's a different image. It may look the same, but it, it's different. So it's easier to 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 track down some of those. Right. So how I got in how I got involved in uh, basically the embassy, them just crimes against children. It, it took me a long way around the barn to get there. So I, I stepped off the desk after a few years. I just I was getting burnt out. I had seven programs. We went through an inspection. I was trying to get the cyber stuff focused. We had uh, a national initiative on the civil rights side with. The Mississippi burning case and the civil rights cold case era cases uh, dealing with all of that. We had a huge case running, uh, running against a civil rights case running against the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. That took a lot of time. And then we had a couple of uh, violent crime UCOs and drug UCOs were running. So it, it was a lot uh, in a small office. And I, I just finally said, you know what, this is not what I came in the FBI for. And I decided to go back to working cases. And I landed on the counterintelligence squad, which was fantastic. I enjoyed the work, just absorbed it, felt like a brand new agent again. And uh, about eight months into my tenure working CI, an opportunity presented to go to Baghdad. And I've been working as a hostage negotiator and really wanted to test my skills out in uh, in the jihadi world. So I got selected to go in 2009 over to Baghdad, and I spent almost five months in a Baghdad prison interrogating guys, and had a had a blast over there. Really en- enjoyed the work. Uh, it went by really fast. When I came back, I thought I would be landing back working counterintelligence, but through transfers, we lost a lot of people. And my supervisor came to me and said, Listen would you mind going back and working cyber? You're the only one that has the experience here working anything cyber. If you do that for the next six months to a year, you know, I'll take care of. It. And I said, all right, you know, he's a good guy. I trusted him. Uh, he's the special agent in charge of Birmingham now. So I told him, I said, okay, I'll do this. So we got this referral from St. Louis and St. Louis said, Hey, we've got an IP address coming from down in Mississippi. Of somebody wanting to trade uh, child porn videos with me. This guy was in one of these little groups. Uh, the undercover had been working well. And once they identified it in our location, he had done everything he could do. He said, I'm sending you this information. So basically, I had an internet protocol address. Mm-hmm. And we did our typical due diligence. You contact, you know, you figure out who the internet service provider is that owned that IP address. You contact them. Hey, on this date and time, who's using it? Who's the subscriber? And uh, I had several IP addresses uh, that came from different locations, but they were all in Western Mississippi. So I had three locations. The, uh, the videos that the guy sent me from St. Louis, I'm looking at it, and it, it's clearly hidden camera video of these young underage girls changing clothes, taking a bath in a bathroom in a house. So I did the basic investigative work did some surveillance of the locations that that were identified from the IP addresses. was able to narrow one of them down as the location where that video was shot. The problem was the family that was living there when the video was shot had moved. The current occupant allowed me to come in, take some pictures, kind of match things up to what I was seeing in the video. And that left me with two other locations. So we're looking for whoever's trading these videos. So we gathered enough investigative information that we got search warrants for the two locations. The first location, we hit the house, and it's a family that lives there. It's a husband who had uh, two sons that he brought into the marriage and a mom that had two daughters that she brought into the marriage. The sons were 8 and 11 years old and the daughters were 16 and I think uh, 11. Well, the daughters that I saw there are the ones that appeared in the video. We were able to confirm that. So we worked with uh, a victim's advocacy group and got some uh, forensic interviews done of them. If I had it to do over again, I probably should have done the interviews. I I had been forensically trained as an OSI agent to interview children in those types of cases. And I was just trusting this outside agency that this person with a master's degree in counseling could handle something like that. It, it didn't work out well. Uh, and it she tainted it enough that I couldn't go back and, and redo the interviews to try to get it done better. So anyway, let's go back to the searches. So we, we see the two girls there. We seize all the computers in the house. We go to another location that's just kind of like a shack out on a dirt road in Mississippi. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. And we go in and there's an elderly man there and his son his son's 21 years old, he's kind of obese he was actually sitting on the bed with a computer and we said, "Hey listen we just we, this, this location came back on this IP address search and you and I both know we can we can track down a location of a computer we can even track down the computer that was used at that time but trying to put hands on the keyboard of who was behind it that's, that takes a little more talent, takes more investigative skill, and it usually comes down to basic investigative skill, of conducting interviews and following leads, which I think uh, a number of the younger ages today don't have as high a skill set as we did back then, probably because we didn't have as much technical assistance as they do, and we actually had to rely on being investigators.
0: I think, so it, I think, it, I think if, can, if I can interrupt you for a second, I think I'd also argue that like the sure. the bad guys probably didn't have as very good operational security either. So that, not that it made it necessarily easier to, to track them down, but they weren't exactly using VPNs and uh, encrypted servers to, to share all their data.
1: Not what, what do we say? We we don't catch the smart one. <laughs> it's
0: good. So. It's an excellent point. I keep forgetting that. Yes, You're correct, sir. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, but but what I used to tell what I used to tell people though, when I was working the online undercover stuff as a, as a side, um, you know, the bad guy when they go out there and try to to obfuscate themselves and when they're doing their illegal activity has to be lucky every time they go out to not mm-hmm. get caught. I'm only got to be lucky once to catch you, and once I catch you and get my hooks into you. Now it's a different story. So getting back to, we did the second search and we took those computers and being in a small office, you know, you've got uh, your, our computer analysis response team members or support staff and they, you know, they want to get back and get to the office and get things started so they can go home. So we were probably about 40 miles from the main field office and they took off and, and went back to process the computers while we we're finishing the search and I'm bouncing back and forth from search scenes. and the 21 year old, you know, was there. Uh, we asked him about his computer, asked him if he had child pornography on his computer. He said no. He said you're not, you know, basically told him you're not under arrest. We didn't have to rights to advise him or anything like that because he wasn't in custody. So I go back to the other location to, as they're finishing up, and I get a call from the computer analysis people, and they said, "You need to get back here to the office now." I'm like, okay. So I raced back to the office, just flying. And I walk in and the, uh, the cart guy said, here, sit down, watch this. And he played two, uh, portions of two videos. Each video is almost an hour in length. And it was of that 21 year old that we had seen at the house as he was raping the 11 year old and the, uh, eight year old. The boys. So I, I get them. Yes. The okay. boys, the okay. two. And they turned out to be the two boys that the father had brought into that marriage that I talked about earlier.
0: And, uh, hold
1: on, oh, and so the father me, was yeah, the father, father was out of town at the
0: time. Let me step back a second. So was the so you started this out though with the they were the images of the girls was the was it the father videoing the girls in the bathroom?
1: That's what we later found out. Okay, gotcha. got you. Okay, what go had happened? Sorry, I jumped is ahead. My bad. Go the, go ahead. The stepfather <laughs> had been videotaping the girls he was out of town at the time as he's coming back in, he hears that the FBI hit his house and he's working to try to delete things off of his phone and his personal laptop.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So that, that worked into some additional charges for him once he got back. So the 21 year old that we saw raping these two little boys, I called back to the search site where he was located. I said, Hey, where's that kid? They said, well, he got in his car and left. I said, Oh, okay. So I'm racing back, uh, and one of the – a fellow agent, a friend of mine, he's drafting an affidavit for an arrest warrant for this kid. So I'm flying back, and I'm on the phone with the U.S. Attorney's Office, with the assistant U.S. Attorney, uh, who's since retired. And I'm talking to him. I said, John, this is what I got. I said, I got this 21-year-old. I got a video of him raping these two little boys. What do you want me to do? And he said, take him out in the woods and shoot him. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, are you going to cover me in court after this happens? He said, I got your back. He said, seriously, though, put him in handcuffs and let's get him in custody. I said, exactly. So he had run off and we put an APV out on him. We ended up catching him in North Mississippi the next day and brought him back into custody. Uh, we finished processing the, the computers. We brought the two boys in for child forensic interviews. Neither one of them would admit what had happened to them, even though we know what had happened to them because we could see it on the videos. And the 21-year-old didn't even contest it. He just pled guilty. So I had worked the case in a partnership with the Warren County Sheriff's Office, which is over in West Mississippi, where Vicksburg, Mississippi is. and. So we ended up charging him federally and in state court. The father that did the hidden camera video of the two girls, he got 10 years in federal prison. The boy, the 21-year-old, he got 35 years federal. Uh, we we, We had the federal court first. The second case was on the state level, and the state gave him 85 years. So he's pretty much done. Of course, we all know how that works. After he finishes his thirty five years in federal prison, if he's still around, then he'll be transferred to state prison in Mississippi, which more than likely he won't last eighty five years. He may not last
0: eighty five minutes when they find mm-hmm. out what he did. Did, um, but did that he just, was pretty did, did, much how I got into that? Quick question, did he distribute the, the images that he created or were they only for him? Did you ever have any evidence? No. Of him
1: the, uh, the, the, the ones of the girls were the ones that he was trying to trade with the guy in St. Louis. Right. We did not find those two videos of him raping the two boys. We did not find those anywhere out there. My guess is, and it's only a guess, eventually he probably would have used those to bargain and trade for other videos mm-hmm. of oh, some sure. type activities. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So uh, we didn't see any evidence of that. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the details of how the undercover in St. Louis worked uh, online where your listeners can hear it, but you and I can talk offline because we know, we know how they do things uh, in the background.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: More than likely he would have traded it with someone else. Sure. So uh, anyway, so he ended ended up getting the uh, 35 plus 85. It made all the papers and stuff down here. I got, you know, got some accolades, but, I, you know I made sure that I took care of my computer analysis response people, the people that helped me on the search I made sure I spread the wealth on people getting credit for you know giving out successful accomplishments, putting people in for incentive awards, things like that it's just everybody everybody played a role in that there's no way you can do it by yourself
0: right. And I think even so that, that was pretty much the case case you wanted to talk about. yeah and and so let's let's kind of stay on on that particular aspect of of distributive images online and, and targeting of kids and so on. So looking at the cyber landscape, you know obviously you've done cyber a long time from from OSI all the way up through the, your bureau time. but since we came in to now, the targeting of kids has always been a problem and it doesn't seem to be any better. So after you your last uh, couple of years in the bureau, you were the outreach coordinator for for Jackson, correct?
1: Yeah, the private sector coordinator.
0: Right, so you did a lot of presentations. So, you know, obviously you have knowledge of, of, you know, the cases you worked and other cases that we worked online uh, in the field, particularly revolving um, crimes against children, which for us is is largely human trafficking and from a cyber perspective, the trading of images. What do you tell – what did you tell your – parents when you did outreach I assume you would get requests from schools and stuff on helping parents understand how to protect their kids what was your general take on the nature of how parents needed to to look at their kids being online and, and how to keep them protected
1: well it, it's it's evolved over time so when I, I would first start doing it uh you know right after I came back from Iraq and was working the innocent images or uh, working the and images and the child exploitation type stuff. Uh, I got some, you know, calls from different schools want me to come out and give some presentations about internet safety. And, you know, back then the the presentation was a little different than I would do it today. Uh, primarily my my spiel, as I would call it back then, dealt with Facebook. So I was speaking at a, at a high school in North Mississippi and I brought. I always brought trinkets along with me. I bought brought things, you know, gifts and things to give out, little prizes. And I would start asking the kids, and of course, there'd be some parents in the back of the room and some teachers. And I would ask the kids, "Hey, raise. We're we're going to have a contest here. Raise your hand. Keep your hand up if you have one thousand Facebook friends. <laughs> and uh, you know, hundreds of hands go up. I would say, okay, keep your hands up until we hit a point. I'd say, who has two thousand Facebook friends? Hands start going down. Now we're starting to weed them out. And I keep going until I got to the last one that had like 3,800 Facebook friends. And I would say, congratulations. Here you go. Here's an FBI water bottle and a T-shirt. And I also want to congratulate you for being the number one target for someone trying to groom you online so that they can take advantage of you. And the parents look shocked. And the kids, kids are kind of stunned at what I'm saying. And then I would go through a scenario of how the bad guy would groom them online. I would say, there's no way that you know 3,700 people. Guarantee you don't know all of those people. Mm -hmm. So what am I going to do? That tells me that you're more open to accept friend requests from anybody. So I'm going to send you a friend request. Then I'm going to start tagging myself in pictures of group photos, like at football games or pep rallies or things like that. So you don't really know who I am in the picture, but you, you know that I've tagged myself in there. And then I'm going to follow you online, and I'm going to see the things that you talk about, your interests, your you know, your wants, your desires, the things that, that are important to you and what you talk about with your friends. And then guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to start scripting myself to reach out to you and start talking to you about the things that are important to you, the problems you're having with your parents, the problems you're having in school. I'm going to be the best friend that you've got. And then we're going to work our way up to the point where we actually meet. And I'm going to convince you that it's okay for you as a 15-year-old female to have this type of relationship with a 38-year-old man who understands you. I said, that's how it happens hundreds and hundreds of times a year in the United States. Now, I said, parents, what can you do? And this is this is where we get to the same advice that I give people today. Of course, most of the kids don't really do Facebook anymore. That's for old people. <laughs> Uh, they tend to do tick tock, you know, Instagram, you know, all those things. But I tell the parents, I said, listen, I can't raise your kids. I can't tell you to do what I do because I make mistakes. I said, but when you're paying the bills, the cell phone is your cell phone. Their Internet is your Internet. Their email is your email. Take ownership. I tell my kids, and we started from when they were young, that they can have an email account. They can have a Facebook page. You know they can have these things but i also have to have the user id and password for those so that i can spot check and just like they grew up around me being in law enforcement and seeing guns in the house they weren't curious about it i also talked to them as they were getting older and reasoned with them in a in a kind of range that they could understand about the dangers that are out there in the in cyberspace so they were okay with me having the user ID and password. So that's what I tell parents today is, uh, you know, get involved with your kids, you know, talk to them. Uh, I think one of the things you and I had discussed before, you know, what would I, what what are some of the things I would tell parents to do to keep their kids
2: safe?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I was going to pick the top three to five, I would say the first three easily. Communication, communication,
2: communication.
1: Uh, The maturation age of the human brain is about 25 years old. My degree is in psychology. It's it's 25. You're not really fully developed until you're about 25. So you have to tailor the communication to the uh, chronological age of the child, but you still need to have those conversations. You know, when they're two, you pop their hand so that they won't touch the hot stove. As they get older, you say, the stove is hot. Don't touch it. Later on, you talk to them about the dangers of touching the hot stove and the, <clears throat> the damage that, that can do to their body. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the next thing I would, I would say would be consistency. Stay on top of it. Don't let it be a one-time conversation and then hope that the kid understood everything. It, it needs to be consistency. You need to stick with it. You need to have the child demonstrate an understanding of what you're trying to get across. And then the fifth thing would be accountability for the parent and the child. You know, talk to the child that when they do things wrong, there are consequences for those actions and explain to them, you know, I'm not punishing you. You did something and this is the result of what you did. So if you don't do that, this doesn't happen again. You know, there's cause and effect. Work with your child on understanding that and then accepting that responsibility. Uh, as far as keeping your child safe out online, do as much as you can to limit the exposure of who your child actually is online. I, I use it. And I'm sure you do. I, I use a throwaway email address, something that if I have to sign up for something to get additional information, I use that one. So all the spam goes to that email.
2: Yep.
1: Same thing with your child, give them something that they can use that, they, that you know, they, if they have to sign up for a service or something that, is not something they need to constantly uh, reassert, just give them a throwaway email address. I do the same thing with social security numbers. When we first moved here, my oldest son fractured his arm and we went to the hospital and <clears throat> the hospital told me they needed my child's social security number. I said, unless you're contributing to his retirement account <laughs> and Social Security, you don't get it. I said it's not an identification number. As a matter of fact, it says on the card this is not to be used for identification purposes. Well, the problem with most hospitals are for decades and decades, they use the social security numbers, their tracking mechanism for their hospital records, and it costs too much for them to change it. So in Mississippi, they actually passed a law that allows them to continue using social security numbers to track their medical records. How do you get around that? I never gave them my kids social security numbers. I think their mind's already out there. I just give them mine. I pay the bills anyway, so they want to look it up. You know, they can look it up. Fortunately, my oldest son, is uh, his name's Jake, but his first name's Christopher. My first name's Christopher. They'll never know. And it's never been a problem.
2: Yep,
0: that's good. That's great information. I hadn't thought about that when I was talking earlier about, you you know, protect your kids' information because it's going to come back. And I mean, there's plenty of fraudsters out there that would love to use a nice, fresh Social Security number that has no credit on it to start establishing that credit if they could. So what are your thoughts on, yeah, what are your thoughts on TikTok and other social media apps and their influence on kids today and and how, I mean, I think you've kind of talked about being proactive, but how do parents even keep track of them? I'll be honest with you. I used to be on top of all these apps. I don't know if I am anymore. My kids are in their 20s, so I don't pay attention quite as much. But for those newer parents who are dealing with giving their 12-year-old a cell phone so they can at least have contact with them, but their kids are downloading all sorts of different apps. And what's your thoughts on those?
1: Well, every parent <laughs> has to assess their own situation. I can only tell them what we do in our household. The, the, the cell phones that I have uh, are on my account, so I have control over things that get installed and even updates on my son's cell phone, and I track it through my business account uh, for usage and minutes. But you can't be everywhere at every time. I mean, it's just, it's like you said, for, you just have to trust that after a number of years, you've, you've gotten the point across to your kids. And they've, they've learned, they've absorbed that knowledge. But as far as, as TikTok and those uh, social media apps, I look at them the same way I looked at them through psychology. They're as addictive as drugs. I, I have I've even talked to some adults and I'm sure you have too, who will pull up TikTok and start watching some TikTok videos and then get sucked down what I call a TikTok rabbit hole.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then they look up and it's three, it's three hours later. They don't even realize they've been online that long for three hours. Now you're an adult, and you're supposed to be able to control your impulses. You know, imagine a kid, not even 25 years old, let's say 16, raging with hormones and stuff, and starts going down that TikTok hole. They might, heck, there's no telling how long they would get lost. But then it goes back to what I mentioned before communication. Talk with your child in terms they can comprehend about the dangers, be consistent, hold them accountable, and at some point, you know, you have to let them go out there and and hope for the
0: best. Yeah, and the one thing I would add about TikTok, and I've mentioned this in some LinkedIn posts and stuff, is, you know, TikTok was created by a Chinese company, managed, owned, and operated by a Chinese company. It doesn't look like there's going to be any kind of U.S. influence in that company anytime soon based on the current administration's take towards China, but they're collecting all sorts of facial recognition now. So in 20 years, if your 14-year-old, 15-year-old son decides he wants to be a CIA undercover operator, China knows what he looks like. So if he goes into China as an undercover op- oper- you know, undercover person, case officer for the CIA or whoever, and he says he's his name is such and such, they're going to know he is who he is and he's got all sorts of trouble. I mean, that's just one extreme example, yeah. but yeah.
2: That,
1: that's, that's not even an extreme example. One of the things I did, especially coming up doing cyber undercovers, uh, I, I was the undercover coordinator for about 10 years in the Jackson division, and that's one of the, one of the hurdles that we had to overcome was the facial recognition. Uh, I think one of the last conferences I went to, we talked about just hotels, and I actually saw it in effect, the hotel that I was staying in. I went down and I, I sat in the lobby, and this major chain hotel had facial recognition. And I could tell because when someone would walk in coming in to check in, the clerk would know who that person is before they even got to the counter. And there is no way that clerk knew almost everybody that was coming in.
2: If you stayed
1: there before, there was some visual image. I also know that there's some uh, major chain stores that are out there that if you needed to, if I needed to find every place that Darren bought every uh, particular store in their chain that Darren Mott went into, not too difficult as long as they've got facial recognition. Look at when you go into Walmart today, there's a camera right there yep. taking pictures of you. Yep, it, it is kind of scary. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm confident that the experts in the field at the FBI are going to figure out a way around it. Uh, I know on the undercover side, typically when you put somebody in, in into an undercover role. It involves aging some of the information they have, creating a history, mm-hmm. and you know we have we have agreements with some entities that are out there that allow us to you know set up credit you know aged credit reports, aged work histories, aged online persona. But you on the uh, on the cyber side, I, I'll tell you this: uh, one thing that is a, that offers another hurdle, and and I'll say this right out is with Facebook. Years ago, when we were working with Facebook, they had used artificial intelligence to pick up on on fake accounts. So they would look and they they could make a determination that this doesn't seem like a real account because of this pattern of activity that's occurring on the account. Now, if you're an undercover FDI uh, division and you're trying to set up a, a history to go back and build on that, it's really hard to get past that without artificial intelligence picking up on it. Uh, I'm, I'm confident because I, I haven't heard any you know, big blowups in the media and things like that uh, with the FBI and their undercover stuff. But they figured out a way to work through it. Uh, I don't know how you do it without partnering up with some of those entities to help you set it up. But, you know, in the undercover world, it's, it's like telling a secret. The only, only way to keep a secret is you're the only one that knows the secret. And the more people you tell the secret, you know, exponentially more people could know about it. It's great. And that's, yeah. that's a dangerous thing when it's, you're working undercover. It's a
0: great point. I mean, the whole narcissism the kids have with their online apps is going to come back and bite them down the road. Especially, I mean, not not just for for like what we're talking about undercovers and things like that, but just getting a job. I mean, look at the um, oh yeah the 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 Teen Vogue editor who just got hired just quit because when she was young, she made some comments she shouldn't have on Twitter about a specific racial group. So, you know, be careful what you're saying. So let me end with this last question that I ask most of the agents I have on. If you could go back and tell your, go back to your 15 year old self, kind of like uh, Biff in uh, Back to the Future, what would you tell yourself?
1: From a... Uh, just on any topic whatsoever, any topic, whatsoever,
0: no, 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 any topic whatsoever. If you could go back knowing what you know now and go back to your, to you when you were 15, what would you tell yourself to do differently? If anything, if you okay. did everything perfectly, so, then there's no answer.
1: At, at, fi- <laughs> at 15 years old, uh, and, and I have been asked this question before <laughs> and, and I, I tell people this, I wouldn't change anything. Uh, do anything to change the path I've, I've taken because it got me to where I am today. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those that thinks if you go back and you change one thing, the butterfly effect that you know, you know, all of a sudden I spring forward from age 15 to my age now, and I I get here and I have a different wife and different kids. I, I don't subscribe to that, but I, I wouldn't change it because I do want to stay on that path. But as I've gotten older, I appreciate more of the wisdom and experience in my elders. And I would tell my 15-year-old to spend more conscious time with my grandparents and great-grandparents. I would ask them about their youth. I was talking to my dad about this the other day. One of my great-grandmothers, my dad's uh, grandmother, was born just after the Civil War. My paternal grandfather, in conversations I had with him, he told me about Civil War veterans living in his neighborhood. I mean, imagine that. This is this is a huge thing that happened in American history, and my grandfather knew people that fought in that war.
2: Mm.
1: Growing up, Uh, it's similar to the advice I would give today's agents: talk to the older agents about how the FBI has changed. You know, when you and I came in, there were still Hoover agents around. There were agents. You know, I I can remember sitting and talking to uh, a couple of the agents. They were working the applicant squad that was adjacent to the cyber squad. But I remember sitting down and talking to this this one guy, Ron, and he was talking about bumping into J. Edgar Hoover, you know, over at, at DOJ, going, you know, in the elevator with a handful of evidence, and just it, it's just amazing to be able to talk to people from back then. And and the reason I think that's important and to really grasp what was going on at the time, what they, what they were facing, some of the conversations and I appreciate what we're doing here today. Think about it. Today's new agents probably have barely remember nine 11.
2: Right. True.
1: And to me, I can close my eyes and I can see Tuesday morning, bright and sunny day, having yep. come off of uh, assisting the safe street squad with search and arrest, eating breakfast with two senior agents, at Bob and Edith in Crystal City near the Pentagon, uh, sitting under the bridge when my wife calls me on the cell phone, and I probably was one of the seven people out of the 800 agents in the Washington field office at the time that even had a cell phone. And that was only because we were able to get it because of an undercover operation. Everybody else had pagers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and hearing about the towers getting hit, and then... I still remember vividly driving down 66 and hearing the call come up the radio when 77 hit the Pentagon and just the fact that of how everything changed. And I think that if the agents today don't take the time to sit and really absorb what we went through in our generation, they're going to be the ones to suffer for it. Uh, I, I think there's a You know, I I hope it's not happening around the entire FBI, but, and I don't know how you feel about this, just based on my personal experience, I I don't know if the FBI could respond the way that we responded on 9-11 today.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if they, I'm not sure if we're prepped for it or if we have the, the will to do it the same way. Hard to say. Well, we'll say that is a great that's probably the best answer I've heard. It's, it's much better than mine. Mine is just simply when on January 4th, 2009, buy 100 Bitcoin. That would be what I would tell my 15 year old self. But. <laughs> well, I, I was fortunate enough
1: that at 15 years old, uh, you know, you and I have discussed this. You know, I, I was born in the Holy Land. So it's, uh, you know, at age 15 living in the Holy lands of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I, uh, I probably would have spent more, spent more time recognizing that while I was selling hot dogs at Bryant Denny stadium as a 15 year old in the ninth grade at Tuscaloosa junior high school, <laughs> that down on that field was bear Bryant coaching the Alabama Crimson Tide. And I was more concerned with selling enough programs to be able to buy sodas and, and, uh, and hot dogs so I could sit in one of the box seats on the 50-yard line and watch the football game than I was of anything
2: else. That's awesome. Well,
1: yeah, I would have spent more, time, spent more time recognizing Bear Bryant.
2: <laughs>
0: That's a good point. Well, we'll, we'll with that, we'll, we'll end with a roll tide. But, Chris, I appreciate you taking the time to come talk. That was a great conversation, and uh, I'm sure we will have more in the future.
1: I, I would enjoy it. I uh, really love your podcast. Like I said, uh, keep it up. I think uh, taking the time to talk to you know some of the old timers like us and learning where we came from, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been.
0: That's a great point. We'll leave it on that. Thanks, sir. All right, thanks, bud. So let me end with one more thought on cr- crimes against children online and the severity and the risk therein. So. A lot of times you will see reports of individuals arrested for the possession or distribution of child pornography online. A lot of times they may not have created the particular child pornography, but they became in possession of it and traded it with other other folks online committing the same crime. So a lot of those individuals are convicted of that particular crime, and very little is done to look into what other crimes they may have committed. Well, in 2009, the Federal Bureau of Imprisons Um, There was a study conducted at the Butner Federal Prison in Butner, North Carolina. And it suggested that more than 80% of men convicted for possessing child pornography had engaged in previously undetected hands-on sexual activities involving children. So what this means is while they're arrested simply for possession of child pornography, 80% of those men convicted had also uh, physically abused a child somewhere along the way. So I, I know all this just to make you understand that the threat goes beyond just the images. There is a real likelihood of threat of uh, physical violence against children by these guys that trade in these images online. So it's an additional, you know, thing to think about when you're trying to make sure you keep your kids protected. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on an online program on how to keep your kids protected. With goes into much more detail than we have here on the podcast. So. When that is ready, I'll let you know. If you're interested in beta testing that particular program, send me an email, uh, and when I get it ready, I'll send it to you for free, and you can try it out and tell me what you think. If it's something you think is valuable or has good information, that would be appreciative if there's more stuff you'd like to see in it. If there are particular issues regarding protecting your kids online that you'd like me to discuss in future podcasts with other folks, let me know. Uh, This is probably a topic we will engage in at a later date as well. So with that, again, I thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to Chris Hinkle for participating and being interviewed. Uh, If you want to send me an email, my email is Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N, at the cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R. Again, find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash I-N slash Darren Mott, all one word. And with that, make sure you go through your week. Hopefully you understand the threats targeting you you assess your risk online, you proceed wisely. And as always, I do these podcasts to help you understand the threats around you, because for me, knowledge is protection. Thank you very much. Have a good week. We'll talk to you soon.